Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, we come with uh, many distractions in our minds, in our hearts. Father, we're torn people, torn from the tyranny of the urgent, and yet you tell us to come and be still and know that you are God. And Lord, I know that this morning my heart has not been stilled. Lord, I have not reflected that you are God. But Father, we come and we open Your Word this morning and we pray that our hearts would be stilled. Stilled by the words that You have spoken. Father, these are the very words of Almighty God. Let us take reverence to hear them this morning. Father, let everything be stilled in our hearts this morning that we could hear the voice of Your Holy Spirit moving in our hearts today. Father, You have brought this text to us for this time, at this moment, for just a time as this, so that our hearts would be opened to what You have to do in our lives today. Father, as we explore the subject of sin this morning from John chapter 5, I pray that Your Spirit would move in a mighty way this morning. That, Father, we would be ready to give the sin that we have in our lives over to You. Father, I pray for the heart that's never trusted You as their Savior this morning. That they would give their life to You. That Lord, just as Tim has sung, that our life song would sing about You. Father, teach us from Your Word this morning. Father, use me in a powerful way this morning. That Father, it would not be my own words this morning, but it would be Yours. Because Your Word is living and active. So, Father, we pray that that living and active Word would make its place here today in great prominence and preeminence so that You would receive glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Grab the yes, you would open your Bibles and grab your outlines this morning as we continue in our series entitled God in 3D. And we're going to be looking at John chapter 5 this morning. So if you'd like to open your Bibles to John chapter 5, it is within this text that we learn about the third of the seven miracles that Jesus shows us in the Gospel of John. Now Jesus tells us at the end of John's Gospel that these would be, serve as signs of significance. Not just for those that would experience the miracles. Jesus performed seven miracles in the Gospel of John. Some were done to just an individual. Next week, or two weeks from now, we'll know uh, more about him serving a greater number when he feeds the 5,000. But these miracles aren't just for those who experience them firsthand. But they are valuable lessons for you and I to apply to our own lives in our today. Uh, now, 2,000 years later, after the healings have been done. Now today, in John chapter 5, we look at the healing of a man who had been disabled for 38 years. Think about that for a moment. 38 years of disability for one day to be healed. What an incredible miracle. It's one of those biblical events, one of those biblical stories that you would say would find its place on the Hollywood big screen. But I don't know of John 5 being made into a Hollywood motion picture. But this type of storyline has made it to Hollywood. 
and the true amazing stories that they've given have been adapted to show to millions. In 1990, one of my favorite movies was released, and it was entitled Awakenings. If you remember, it starred uh, Robert De Niro and Robin Williams. And the story is a true story about a British-born neurologist named Dr. Oliver Sacks who served at a hospital in uh, the Bronx in New York City. Now, Dr. Sachs was a new doctor who was working in a ward of comatose patients, if you remember the movie. And he wonders as he comes in the first week, he's wondering if there's anything that can be done for his patients. Now, his patients had become human statues as a result of an encephalitis outbreak in the 1920s. Now, many of them had been misdiagnosed as schizophrenics or hysterics. But what Dr. Sachs begins to do is begins to work with the patients. And he finds out that there's this new drug that he thinks may help them. And the new drug was called L-Dopa. And his first patient was Leonard Lowe. And he begins to spend time with Leonard. And he gives him this drug. And all of a sudden, one day, Leonard comes and has a sane mind. After 30 years of being in a canatonic state, Howard is there. And he enjoys and begins to enjoy life. So Dr. Sachs moves and he begins to give this drug to other patients. And before you know it, the whole ward is healed. And they begin to encounter family and friends and begin to pursue things. The whole movie, end of the movie, is all about Leonard learning about life. He even falls in love with a woman. But we know that at the end of the story, and I don't want to take it away from you, but that their healing is fleeting. And at the end of the story, we find out that they all go back to the state of helplessness that they were in. A second movie that I thought of when I thought about this type of healing came out in 1999, and it starred Val Kilmer, and it was called At First Sight. And the story is based on a, a true uh, event that happened with a young woman named Amy who falls in love with a blind man named Virgil. And out of her love for him, she seeks out an eye specialist who has been renowned to begin to restore sight to people that have been blind. Intrigued by the opportunity of love and sight, Virgil says that he would agree to the surgery. And the miracle happens. If you've seen the movie, you know Virgil's eyesight is restored. And a whole new world is opened up to Virgil. But nothing would work out as Amy and Virgil had ever expected. Because just because Virgil's eyes worked, it didn't mean that his brain was fully aware of what his eyes were seeing. So they had to get someone to come in and train Virgil how to see all anew. But again, just like in the story of Awakenings, Virgil would lose his eyesight once again. Two stories about amazing healings that happen through medical breakthroughs. But something where, where the two stories part ways with John chapter 5 is that the healings that both of those individuals had were fleeting and only created in the end hurts and pains. But John chapter 5 tells us that the healing that took place would not just be some fleeting moment, but it would be a healing that would last a lifetime. So I want to look at another answer that Jesus is, and it's not just to our uh, disappointment, it's not just to our doubt like we learned last week, but Jesus, in fact, is the answer to our disability. And I want to talk about that this morning. So if you would open your Bibles to John chapter 5, we're going to be looking through verses 1 through 15. This is what the text says. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool which is in Aramaic called Bethesda 
and which is surrounded by five covered uh, colonnades. Here, a, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get uh, in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Verse 8 says, Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Now the day on which this all took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. If you grab your outlines, there are three things that we learn. If we desire to understand that Jesus is the answer to our disability, the first thing we must understand is that our disability, our disability results from a spiritual condition. It results from a spiritual condition. Now John starts out this passage in verse 1 and 2 by giving us a context to what is going on. And I want us to do that for a moment. In verse 1, he tells us that this phrase, some time later. Well, sometime later from what, John? Well, scholars believe this is to connect the events of John uh, 4 to John chapter 5. You would think that would happen, but how does all this get put together? Well, we see from the first four chapters of John that Jesus does a lot of traveling. I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2 for a moment. John chapter 2. We see Jesus beginning his earthly ministry. And where does he begin his earthly ministry? He begins it uh, publicly uh, at the wedding at Cana. Now we know that in John chapter 2, you'll see in your heading that Jesus is hanging out at this wedding in Cana, which is in northern Israel. And we know that he's there. He changes the water into wine. And then it says in verse 12 that he heads out for Capernaum. So he takes off from uh, Cana, heads east to the city of Capernaum, about 17 miles from the city of Cana. In verse 13 it says that once he's in Cana, he heads south again to Jerusalem. Now why does he go to Jerusalem? It says to participate in the Passover feast. So now Jesus is going from Cana, Capernaum, now he's down in um, Jerusalem celebrating the feast of Passover. Now, in John chapter 3, we see Jesus in Jerusalem, and he gets an appointment with Nicodemus. And we know that in John chapter 3, he speaks about the importance of being born again. That's all happening during the time of uh, the Passover feast. Now, in John 3:22, look at your text, and it says that he and his disciples head out to the countryside of Judea. Jesus is on the move. Now, while he's there, heading out to uh, the countryside of Judea, he heads through the area called Samaria. And in John chapter 4, as he's heading through Samaria, he comes to a well where there is a woman. Of course, we know that being the woman 
at the well. And Jesus speaks about the gift of living water. He speaks about worship, that God is seeking worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. That's in John chapter 4. Then it says that after he stayed two days in Samaria, in John chapter 4, after sharing the message of, a message of the gospel to the people of Samaria, that the woman at the well had invited him to come and speak in the city, that then he goes and he heads for Galilee. Now last week we learned that what happens during that time is he's heading for Galilee. He ends up back in Cana, where he was at for the wedding feast. So what happens there? We know that from last week we learn at the end of John chapter 4 that Jesus meets up with this man, this noble man, who comes and he desires for his son to be healed. And we talked about that. And after that point is the context of John 5. John 5 comes some days later after the healing of the nobleman's son. Now it says in our text, if you get back to John chapter 5, that he comes to Jerusalem for a reason. The text tells us that he comes for a feast. We don't know what feast it is. Some say it's the second Passover now, so a full year would have gone by. Others think that it's probably the Feast of Tabernacles. We're not sure what feast it was. But we know that he's there. He's there for a reason. Now it says that he arrives at a pool near the Sheep Gate. Now, the Sheep Gate is located, if you have an idea of Jerusalem, it's located on the northeast side of Jerusalem. If you were to see any kind of news coverage of Jerusalem, there is a major um, uh, building that you will see, and that's the Dome of the Rock. That is the mosque, the Islamic mosque, that is sitting right now on the top of Solomon's Temple. It's a big golden dome. The Sheep Gate is just about uh, a mile and a half northeast of that golden dome to give you some perspective of where the sheep gate is at. Now it says that the pool was near the sheep gate. It was called Bethesda, which means house of mercy or house of outpouring. And we're going to learn that that becomes a reality today as we look at our text. Now, we know that this pool actually existed. Back in the 1960s, archaeologists found this pool. They said that it measures, after unearthing it, that it measures 55 feet long, 12 feet wide, and it had 24 steps leading down to it. And as they began to explore, they said that it did, in fact, have the five covered roofs with um, pillars standing up. So it had this roof-like structure to it. Now, when Jesus arrives to this pool, John tells us that there's a group of people there. Now, he's very descriptive. He says that the group of people that are there are suffering from all kinds of ailments, all kinds of troubles. He says the lame, the blind, the paralyzed, they're all laying there. Now, why is it that they would hang out at this pool? Was there something there that that group of people could use for their own good? Well, the answer to that is a little bit controversial. I want you to look to your uh, NIV Bibles this morning. and Some may not have NIV, but I know we preach from that, so most of us will have that. In the NIV Bible, and I believe in the ESV, the um, New American Standard Bible, all of them have a footnote for verse 4. If you look at your Bibles, you'll see verse 3, and then it usually, unless you have a King James, I believe, you will go to verse 5. But there's a footnote. There should be a number there. Is everybody seeing that? There's some sort of number? Mine has number three next to it. And then I have to look down to the bottom of the page. Whether you have a study Bible or not, there should be a footnote with some writing at the bottom of the page corresponding to that number. How many of you that's the first time you've ever looked to the bottom of your Bible at any of those footnotes? 
I know no one's going to admit to it. Those are translation notes. What that is, is when the translation team puts things together. If there's any question about a word that they use, if there's any uh, kind of explanation that they want to have, they want you, the reader, to be able to understand why they used a particular word or a particular phrase. But look at what it says for this footnote. It will say something, uh, and I pulled this out of my NIV study Bible, it gives the footnote that some less important manuscripts say, and then they list the following. Let's talk about that for a moment. When translators put the Bible together, their desire is to use a certain set of manuscripts. Okay, What they are doing is going and saying, we want to create a Bible in the year 2006. Well, the last thing you're going to do is go find a Bible from 1975 to translate from. We want to get back as far to the originals as possible. So what they do is they go and find the most ancient and most reliable manuscripts, which go back to the first century. We are not holding a Bible that's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. When there's translations going on, they are going back all the way as far back as they can go to get the original manuscripts. Now, when they say, the translators say that what is shared in verse 4 is not found in the most reliable of manuscripts, what they are saying is sometime later, which we find out from history in the 4th century, this verse was added. Now, I know that will scare some people. Well, the translators have pulled that out and said, all right, we're going to put this in parentheses, because that's a long time back, and we're not sure why that verse got placed there. Now, before you get nervous about, my goodness, what's going on with my Bible, look to verse 7. Look to verse 7 for a moment. In verse 7, it gives us an idea of something that is going on. Why are these people there? It says, Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. When I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. All right, now the man has shared something. Now, this is in uh, the original, so we can know that something is going on. And the translators added something sometime around the 4th century. We know that this verse was placed in Latin's, I'm sorry, in uh, Jerome's Latin Vulgate Bible, the Bible that's used by Roman Catholics at the, at the beginning in the 4th century. Okay? And many of the translations that have come, especially the King James, was based primarily on the translation of Jerome in the Latin Vulgate Bible. So that's a big reason why the King James would have this verse in there. But as we look, we say, okay, what's going on? This water is being stirred. So what do the translators add to it? This is what they say. And they waited. This is what's going on in verse 3 to verse 4. And they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one in, after each disturbance, would be cured of whatever disease he had. They're explaining why this group of people are around there. Now, a couple of reasons why this verse has controversy to it is we don't see angels work in this way. Not saying that it couldn't happen. None of the scholars would say that it, it for sure didn't happen. But what they're saying is, is it seems kind of um, questionable that an angel would work in this way because we don't see an angel work in this way. But nonetheless, some sort of stirring would go on. Now we know that springs in that day, and in fact archaeologists tell us from their digging out of this pool that there was an underwater aqueduct that serviced this pool. And what would happen is, is that it came from a hot spring. Now, hot springs, if you know, are full of uh, mineral deposits and all kinds of things which would have been beneficial to people with ailments. 
So what probably happened is what scholars say is that this spring would bubble up, would bring warm water to this pool, and it began to have healing powers to it. It's kind of very similar to you taking a warm bath in Epsom salt. Remember that? My mom I used to get sick. She'd say, it's time to take a bath in some Epsom salt. And I never understood that. Like, what is she making, a stew or something? Is she going to feed me to somebody? And she'd say, no, it'll make you feel better. Warm water does that. We get into things like jacuzzis, and what do we do? We love it. I don't ever want to leave this place until you get all pruney. All right? Warm water has that effect. And scholars believe that's what was going on, that there was healings going on, gradual uh, healings taking place. So picture with me for a moment this large group of people hanging out at this pool, hoping that they may have an opportunity to get into the pool. Now it says they want to get there, want to be the first one in. Why? Because once everybody would jump into the pool, the balance of that pool would begin to go out of whack. Any kind of mineral deposits or anything would become diluted because of the people that are in the pool. So its effectiveness would go away. So here we have this pool of water that can heal some people. But as Jesus comes in, he sees this group of people, and we see a couple things from the text. First of all, we see that when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he sees a group of wretched people. Write that in your outlines. A group of wretched people. Now, where do we get that in the text? We don't get it, per se, in the text. But where we get it is our history of first century Palestine. When we do studying, especially from the writings of Josephus, we know and understand that people that had or struggled with long-term ailments like leprosy or some sign of disability, blindness, being paralyzed, something like that, that in first century Palestine, that was a, uh, if you will, a scarlet letter of some sort of sin that you committed. That what it meant was that if you were dealing with some long-term ailment, that it was your fault because you did something wrong. So what would happen is, is that back in the first century, there was no kind of laws that would help support disabled individuals. It was, you're on your own. In fact, there were many accounts of, of people being left for dead as a result of their disability. Because families would disown them. They'd say, you know what, we don't have time to worry about you, time to deal with you, so good luck on your own. And we know that there was no government system that would help, like welfare or anything like that. So many of these people would find themselves on the street begging for food, begging for help in any way that they can. So Jesus comes upon this group of people, a great multitude, it says, that are wretched individuals. Next we see that not only are they wretched, but they're waiting. They're waiting. Think about for a moment. The focus is on this pool of water. Here are all these wretched people all wanting healing from some ailment or some sort of illness or sickness. And picture it, if you will, the stage is this pool. And we're all sitting there waiting for the bubbling of the water. What a time. Sitting there and just waiting and watching and wondering when the bubbling was going to take place. When was the healing going to take place? They found themselves waiting. Finally, I think that they were probably asking themselves, why? Why? Anytime we deal with any kind of long-term ailment, anytime we deal with any kind of struggle, we ask the question, why? Those that struggle with disabilities, those that struggle with uh, life-threatening diseases, I'm sure ask those questions. Why me, God? Why is this happening to me? When is it going to end? Why can't I be healed? So we have this group of wretched people who are waiting and who are asking why. 
And this is what Jesus comes upon. They're subject to so much pain. I'm sure when Jesus walks into that area, they're screaming. There are people begging, crying out, give me money, give me food, give me something, help me. Picture it for a moment. A bunch of people begging you to help them in their greatest hour of need. And that's where Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. That's the picture. And you sit there and say, okay, it's a great picture, John. I will tell you, it's a wonderful picture for us today. Why? Because it is a biblical picture of us in our sin. We're a wretched people. We're a wretched people that are waiting for the redemption of our souls. Not only are we waiting, but as sinners, we're asking the question, why? Why to this? Why to that? Why is there suffering in the world? Why is it that there seems to be no justice in our world system? Why, God? Why? And just like this group, this multitude of people at the pool in Jerusalem, we find ourselves in a similar position. I want to answer that question to why this morning. Write down in your outlines that the first thing we see is that our disability has a primary source. Our disability comes from a primary source. The reason for disability, and I'm not just talking physical disability, but spiritual, emotional, any kind of disability or ailment we have, finds its beginning with sin. Now, what I mean by that is just because you're physically or emotionally or spiritually disabled does not mean that maybe per se, especially on the physical and emotional end of things, that you have committed a sin. No, that's not what I'm saying. Because that would be the same wrongful thinking that was going on in the first century. But we know that, Jesus, or that God, in the beginning, created the heavens and the earth. And He creates this place on the earth called the Garden of Eden. And we are told that it's made in all perfection, that there's no dying, that it's only a place of life and vitality. But we know that sin brought utter chaos into the world. Sin is the primary source of every problem that we face. Everything. Every problem that we have can find its beginning with that three-letter word, sin. That doesn't mean that everything we face comes as a result of a sin today. But it comes from what we would call the total depravity of the world. In fact, even the creation, Romans chapter 8 says, is groaning. Why? Because it's under the weight of the sin issue. And it's waiting, it says, for the redemption of all creation. You know, it's sad in our world today is that our churches don't like talking about this word sin. And it's kind of funny. It'd be like going to the doctor's office and finding out that you've got some sort of condition. And the doctor never dealing with that. But telling you, well, you know what? So you've got this uh, chronic, you know, I just, I just found out, just to give you just a, a point of application, I, I found out I have chronic asthma. 30 years of age, I've wondered for a long time why I breathe the way I do. And some of you have said, my goodness, you just don't ever sound like you're breathing just right. I said, well, look at the large frame. You've got to carry this thing around. You're going to breathe heavy. And then I go to the doctor, and the doctor says, you've got asthma. You've got it pretty bad. So we need to get you on medication. Now, what if I go in there, and the doctor says, all right, you've got asthma, so let me tell you about how to be a good husband. Let me tell you about how to be a good father. Let me tell you about how to watch your temper. Let me tell you about this. That's not going to accomplish 
my problem. I will tell you, the biggest problem with our churches in America today is we're dealing with other issues instead of the primary one. Instead of dealing with the sin, we talk about how we need to be better husbands. That's great. We all need to be better husbands, men. But the reason why we're not the husbands that we need to be is because of sin. The reason why we're not the parents that God wants us to be is because of sin. It's not because, well, you didn't listen to Keith's advice and make sure you had a card on Valentine's Day. It is breed out of selfishness, which is sin. That other things are more important than your marriage or your family or, in fact, Jesus Christ. The reason why we preach about things like sin, people say, well, sin is kind of offensive. I remember watching Larry King was one of the most prominent preachers in our day. Say, well, I don't like talking about sin. It makes people feel bad. Good! We should feel bad. Why? Because we are dead in our trespasses and sin. And our biggest problem in life isn't the issues with the relationships that we have. It's our issue with sin. It's a primary source. It was the primary source of these men and women that were hanging out. But we see that there's a second element because you would say, all right, I've got this issue of sin. And if it's so bad, Tim, if it's so pervasive in my life, why don't I just get rid of it? Well, we can't because it has a second thing to it, and that is that this disability of sin has a paralyzing, comes with a paralyzing force or is a paralyzing force. It's a paralyzing force. The text tells us that all these people suffered from all different kinds of afflictions, and they were considered to be invalids. They were helpless. Now, that's true when it comes to us with sin. I want to give you a definition of sin. Sin is simply defined, write this somewhere in your outlines, as a failure, as any failure, any failure to conform to the moral law of God. Any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. In act, attitude, or nature. Now with that defined, we know that sin entered the world in the garden. We know that sin entered the world when, uh, when Satan tempted Eve to eat of the fruit. And we know that sin enters when Adam sits there and says, I know we're not supposed to do this, but you know what? The woman did it, so I'll do it. Chomps on the apple, or whatever fruit it was, and sin enters the world. Now we know that from that point, the Bible teaches clearly that because of Adam's sin in the garden, all of us now have that stain of sin in our lives. That at that moment that we grab that little baby in our arms, that little baby that's been kicking and screaming inside the mother's womb for nine months, so innocent and pure, we believe with all our hearts that that baby is full of sin. Why? Because of Adam's sin. David said that he was conceived in sin. That in his mother's womb there was sin. And it's called the idea of original sin. Now in doing so, what happened was, because of Adam's failure to, see, to continue to do what God would desire, and going out on his own and disobeying, that as a result of that, man and God, who were once together hanging out, having a great time, the Bible says are now sworn enemies, that we are hostile to God. Romans 1 says we are God-haters as a result of our sin. So what happens? 
Well, sin does a couple things. I want to write this down. First of all, sin brings disobedience. Sin brings disobedience. Let's do a little theology lesson on what this sin is. What sin is, is instead of pursuing God and the things of God, you and I choose our own way and pursue the things that will bring us most pleasure or the things that we believe will be best for us. That's what they did in the garden. Instead of listening to God, they said, God, we know what's better for us. We're going to do it our way. Paul spoke about this in Romans chapter 1. He says in verse 21 through 23, For although they knew God, Adam and Eve knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Sin is the disobedience that says, even though God is there, I'm not going to do what He says. That's the first thing that sin breeds. It breeds disobedience. Next we see that it brings defilement. Sin brings defilement. Just write this. It's not in your outline. Just write this somewhere on the side. The problem with sin is that once you and I get cozy with it, once we start hanging out, if you look at the story of Lot, Lot uh, is Abraham's uh, cousin, and he looks over to the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says, you know what, I like what's going on over there, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to live outside of the town. And then that's not good enough, so then he starts moving into town. And more and more, as he keeps getting closer and closer to Sodom, he finds himself in the center of the town, and he finds himself losing his life to sin. That's what we do. We look off far away and we say, boy, that looks nice. Boy, it looks like everybody's having a great time with that. We turn on our computers and we find things that seem to spark something inside of us. And we say, yeah, I'll just look for a little bit, but then I'll turn away. Or we're involved in some sort of dispute with a friend or family and says, you know what, it feels good just to slander them behind their backs. Or maybe it is that I'll, I'll look and I'll see what my neighbor has and boy, wouldn't it be nice to have that TV or, or that car or that house or even that wife or husband or children. We find ourselves cozying up to those thoughts. The problem is, is that sin isn't pretty. The word defiled literally means to make foul, dirty, unclean, to pollute or to taint. Now the scripture speaks about the defiling nature of sin in numerous places. In Isaiah chapter 6, we know that famous text, I see the Lord seated on His throne, high and exalted. Here, Isaiah the prophet sees this amazing picture of God in His holiness. And what does he say? Because he sees a holy God, he sees who he really is. And he uses a Hebrew term that, our word, or that, that word is translated, I am ruined, I am undone. The idea is, is literally someone has cut me up from inside out and let everything out. I got nothing left. I am completely undone. That's what sin does to us. In Psalm 38, 3-8, it says this, Because of your wrath there is no health in my body. My bones have no soundness because of my sin. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. I am bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. My back is filled with searing pain. There is no health in my body. I am feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in the anguish of my heart. That's 
what sin does. You, you start playing around with fire. You start playing around with the issues of sin. Whether you're a young person, man, woman, whoever you are, you start playing around with that. This is what the byproduct of sin is. It defiles you. It defiles you. And it's amazing because it doesn't just stop with one thing. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, it speaks of the unbeliever being darkened in their understanding and being separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Why do they do that? Why do we continue to pursue the things of sin? Because having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Do you know when we start dabbling around with sin, it doesn't say, well, you know what? I'll just have a little bit. Just the side of adultery. Just the side of lying. Just the side of greed. We say, that's it. You know, I'm trying to watch my figure, so just give me a little bit. And it becomes a side, and it's like, you know what? Bring me another. Bring me another. You know what? Where's the buffet line for this? I'll just go ahead and help myself. That's what sin does. It creates an appetite for more. Well, what does it lead to? What does it lead to? It leads to death. It leads to death. Death has a couple components. First of all, we know that we, both, we die both spiritually and we die physically. In Ezekiel 18.20, it says, The soul that sins is the one that will die. When we sin, we will die. Jesus said that when we uh, took of the apple in the garden... That in that day that we did that, we would surely die. Spirit, sin brings death. In Romans chapter 3, it tells us who all is going to die, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what happens? The wage of sin is death. In Ephesians chapter 2, it tells us what happens as a result of this spiritual death that we have. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us have lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. I want you to think about something for a moment. And I know you say, well, Tim, you're spending a lot of time on this first point. We'll get to the end of the message. Don't you worry about it. I'll run out of paper, okay? The first thing we need to understand is that when we fell to sin, we didn't have a God that was sitting there hanging out and saying, oh, that's all right, you fell to sin. God says He is a wrath-filled, vengeful God. One of the favorite, famous messages of all time in American history is sinners in the hands of an angry God. And what it says is, is that God is so mad with us, He's so frustrated with us, that He's hanging us over the flames of hell, and we're dangling by a bunch of little spider webs. And we say, well, we don't believe in that type of God. Let me tell you something. On the judgment day, every one of us will. Why? Because God is a holy God who says, you know what? The soul that sins is the soul that will die. But that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the story for this little pool of people that are hanging around this uh, uh, water that they're hoping to be stirred because there's an answer, and that answer is seen in our second point this morning. It involves, uh, secondly, that uh, what happens is, is that our disability next is removed through a supernatural cure. 
Our disability is removed through a supernatural cure. One final thing in your notes of point one that we see as we move to the second point is that sin leads us down a persistent course. It leads us down a persistent course, and what that means is that we can't get out of it. Just like this man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, we too are powerless and paralyzed in our sin. There's nothing we can do to get out of it. So what happens? Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up. Just like in this man's disability, Jesus shows up. Here's this picture of a pathetic group of people hurting, having needs that need to be resolved, having needs that need to be healed, just like us. Jesus showed up into this world and He saw a group, a whole human race, full of pathetic needs coming from one issue, sin. Finding them in their hopelessness. And what does it say? Look at verse 6 of our text. When Jesus saw this man lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, He asked him, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Jesus' gaze turns away from the crowd and he focuses in on one individual. He looks and his eyes begin to penetrate into that one person. You ask the question, why didn't Jesus, being the healer that he was, why didn't he heal the whole lot of them? He could have done it, right? I don't have the answer to why he did it. It's found in the sovereign mystery of God's plan. But God came, Jesus came for one reason, to come and to heal this man. Not just for his own good, but for knowing that this would be recorded in the Holy Scriptures, that you and I would one day read this. There's an application to it. So this man goes, or Jesus goes to this man. Do we see that this man going to Jesus? No, he doesn't even know Jesus is around. I want you to identify and understand one thing. You don't go looking for Jesus. Jesus comes looking for you. He sought me, and He bought me with His redeeming blood. One of the great hymns of the faith that we sing. And it comes from a, a text in 1 John where the same writer, the Apostle John, says this on the reason why we love Jesus. We love Him because He first loved us. Jesus came out of grace and mercy, and He poured out His love and grace upon us. And out of that, Jesus comes and He walks face to face with us and He asks us a question. Look at what it says that He asks. Do you want to get well? You know, that's the question that Jesus gives all of us. At the moment that Jesus comes into our life, the question that He asks first and foremost is it, oh, you know, what are you struggling with today, Tim? Come here. Come here, sinner Tim. I want to talk with you for a minute. So you're a sinner. I, I didn't know that. All right, so what are you doing? Oh, you're dealing with those kinds of sins. I've heard about that, Tim. He doesn't say that. He knows what my condition is. He knows the amount of hairs that I would have on my head if Vic didn't have the other answer to it. All right? He knows us intimately. He doesn't need to know what our condition is. He already knows what it is. He asks the question, do you want to get well? That is the question of the gospel. Do you want to get well? Look what the answer is in verse 7. It says, Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is being stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Stop there for a moment. This man says, I have a desire to be made well but I can't. Because every time I try, no one is around to help me. You know, that's the same excuse that, that Jesus will hear on the judgment day. I had a desire to know you, Jesus, 
But I had a group of parents that weren't very nice. I wanted to know you, Jesus, but the church that I was at, it didn't preach the gospel. I wanted to know you, Jesus, but this or that or the other thing. Jesus comes face to face with this man. He says, you know what? I don't want to hear excuses. The question I want to hear is, yes, I want to get well. Yes, Jesus, I believe you can do it. Look at what he says. He doesn't say that's too bad. He doesn't say, oh, hey, crowd, listen up, crowd. Don't you know this guy's been paralyzed for 38 years? Get off your high knees and help the guy. Stop being so selfish. We don't see that. It's not in any of the translations. Jesus says very simply, look at verse 8, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. The first thing I want to submit to you about that verse is that Jesus does not give a suggestion. He gives a command. He gives a command, a command that has to be obeyed. If the man wants to get up and walk, he has to obey the command of God. If he doesn't, he wouldn't have been healed. There's no question. Either he obeys or disobeys. That is the gospel. The gospel is not some suggestion that Jesus says, Oh, hey, by the way, I died for your sins. Why don't you come and hang out with me? Just a thought. He says, No, repent. That is a command. Stop living the way you lived before. Turn around, do an about face, and start heading for me. The accepting of the gospel message is not an exception or an accepting of a suggestion. It is the obedience to a command. Jesus says, get up. Are we going to listen to that? It's a command. What does this command involve? First of all, it involves placing our faith in the words of Christ. Placing our faith in the words of Christ. Jesus says, get up. What does that mean? What Jesus is asking of this man is that the man would take him at his word. That he would do just as Jesus said. Even though the command seemed impossible. Think for a moment. 38 years you've been disabled. You haven't walked. And Jesus says, get up. You've never met the guy. Get up. It seems impossible. That's what faith is. What faith is, is taking God at His word that says, you're a sinner. And that 2,000 years ago on a cross over in Israel, Jesus came being 100% God and 100% man. Being born of a virgin, that seems impossible. Dying on the cross and the blood that that man shed on the cross will save you from eternal damnation. Seems impossible, doesn't it? The same thing that this man is brought front and center to is the same thing you and I are brought front and center to. And our quest, or the question is, are we going to place our faith in the words of Christ? He says, the soul that sins shall surely die, but I have come that you may have life and have it in all abundance. Are we going to believe that? Next, we see a second thing. Not only does it involve placing our faith in Christ's words, but it also involves following Christ's command. Look at what he says. Jesus says, get up. Pick up your mat. Pick up your mat. This is significant because Jesus is saying, take away any provision of the old way that you used to live. Now the mat that Jesus is speaking about was some sort of apparatus that enabled a man who is disabled to get around. This would have been the most important possession that he had in his life. He says, pick it up. Now, as I was studying this, I was thinking, and I, I didn't see anybody else thinking about it, so then I started asking the question, why am I thinking about this? But the question is, why doesn't Jesus just say, all right, get up. All right, now that you're up, leave it there. Leave it on the ground and walk away. Why doesn't he just say that? Because I believe there's a great testimony 
There's a great testimony in that man picking up that mat. Why? Because as he rolls up that mat, let's just use this hymnal as the mat. As he rolls it up, puts it on his shoulder, you know what he's saying? I was that man that couldn't walk. You see, I've got my mat. I've got my mat here. And I couldn't walk before. But I met Jesus, and he healed me. You know, there are things in our life that we did before we came to know Christ. And you know what Jesus tells us to do? He doesn't just say, all right, hey, forget about those things. Forget about your past. Don't ever worry about those things again. Don't, don't think about them again. You're, you're healed. You're saved. Don't worry about your former way of life. He doesn't say that. What he says to us is, hey, don't live that way anymore. But you know what? Put it on your shoulder and walk with it. Why? As a sign of victory in your life. To point back to say, you know what? I haven't forgotten where I came from. One of the biggest problems that Christians have is we forgot that we were paralyzed in our sin. We have forgotten. We have forgotten the places that we have come from. We have forgotten about what God has done in our lives. And you know what Jesus does? He brings us into trials like I talked about last week. He brings trials into our lives just keep us bringing us back to Jesus. Because it involves picking up our mat. He finally says walk. He says walk. What does that mean? It means walking in the freedom that Christ gives. What he's saying is, is walk. I don't want you to stay where you're at. I don't want you to be a beggar anymore. I don't want you to hang around this pool anymore. Get up and start living the life that now your newfound freedom has given. Jesus doesn't want you to stay where you're at. When you come to know Christ, He doesn't want you hanging around with the garbage that you were hanging out with before. He doesn't want you watching the things that you used to watch. He doesn't want you listening to the things that you used to listen to. He's saying, now that I've healed you, stop living like you did in the past in your uh, state of paralysis. Get up and start walking and experiencing the new life in Christ Jesus. That's what He wants from us. So that brings us to an application. Before I get to my third and final point, the question is today, are you at that place? Now I know in a room like this, there are people that don't know Christ as their Savior. And the question is, have you ever met Jesus face to face? Have you ever admitted your problem with sin? If you haven't, Jesus is asking you the question this morning, do you want to be well? And if so, he's saying, pick up your mat and walk. Stop living in your sin and follow Jesus. If you haven't done that up to this point, I would encourage you with all my heart to come speak to me afterwards. I'm always by the door as you're heading out. Talk to the people at the Welcome Center. Grab Keith or anybody else in your pew. Say, I want to hear more about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to share it with you. Don't leave this place in the paralyzing place that you were. But what about us as Christians? My third and final point as I close this thing out. Our disability is reversed through a specific course. It's reversed through a specific course. In verse 14, look at your text. We see a second encounter that Jesus has with this newly healed man. He says, Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now we don't know whether this man was saved or not. It never says that there was saving faith or that they believed or anything. All we know is he took God, Jesus at his word, gets up, he's healed. But then he says something. He says, see, you are well again. 
Jesus is explaining something. And that is that the Christian life is a life of certainty. Write that in your outlines. A life of certainty. Jesus in verse 14 articulates to this man, See, you are well again. Why would Jesus say that? The guy knows he's well. He's walking around. He knows that he's been healed. Jesus wants to make a couple of things abundantly clear to the man. Number one, that Jesus is the one that healed him. He does not want to think that it's by mere sheer coincidence or by his own willpower that he got well. You know, that's what Jesus is saying to us. Every once in a while, the Holy Spirit says to me, Hey, hey Tim, remember, remember where you were at before you knew me. You were hostile to me. You hated me. You wanted to pursue other things. And the Holy Spirit says, Tim, don't, don't, don't forget that. Remember, I healed you. You didn't reform yourself. I took out your heart of stone and I put in a fleshy heart, Ezekiel tells me. Don't ever forget that. That's what he's saying. Be certain of who saved you. Secondly, he wants to remind them that his healing is there forever. Don't worry about it. You're healed. Hey, live in light of your healing. Be certain of that. Next, we see that it involves a life of victory. He says, stop sinning. Why would Jesus tell him this? Because we can stop sinning. We have victory over that. Now, we won't see that victory in total fulfillment until we're out of this world and away from the the curse of sin and death. But what he's saying is stop doing what you're doing. I don't know if he was caught in a sin. The text doesn't tell us whether he was, you know, vandalizing the temple or something like that. We have no idea what he's doing in the temple. But Jesus says stop sinning. And that's a great reminder for us who were healed a long time ago. For us in our private times, with our private thoughts and our private actions, who look great here, all of us look so wonderful today in our Sunday best, Christians healed. And Jesus says, hey, just because you've been healed, doesn't mean you can go keep on sinning. Because the life of a Christian involves a life of loyalty. That's my last part there. A life of loyalty. You know, he says, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. That's the final phrase. Something worse may happen to you. Scholars believe because of this statement that maybe there was something in this man's early life, some sort of sin that created some sort of demise. And what it means is is maybe, you know, one of the guys said maybe it was drunkenness and he was on a horse drunk and he fell off the horse and his drunkenness, the sin of drunkenness, caused his paralysis. And the reason why Jesus says stop sinning or something worse may happen is a reminder that maybe sin got him in there in the first place, personal sin. We don't know why, but we know that Jesus is calling us to loyalty. Now, we use a term here in our evangelical churches, the term of eternal security. Once saved, always saved. And we sit there and say, I'm saved. So that means I can do whatever I want. And no matter what sin I commit, it's covered. That is a faulty view of justification. Because if we believe that the blood of Jesus Christ is going to allow us to sin more, Romans tells us, Paul cries out, should the grace of God give us the ability to sin all the more? Definitely not. We don't sin because grace may abound. We live a life of loyalty. So what he's saying is is when we're healed, because we're healed by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are called to a life of loyalty in Christ Jesus. So how do we apply this? Very quickly. We apply it quite simply. Remember the day of your healing. Remember. Do you remember the day that you passed from death to life? 
Some of us have forgotten that day. I was at a young age brought to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And there's some great glories out of that. There's some things that I was never a part of. But I will tell you, especially those that were saved at a young age, we don't remember. We don't have an idea of where we were before we met Christ. And like me, if you're like me, some pride begins to build up and say, you know, I wasn't that bad. I wasn't like my drug addict friend over here or my adulterous friend over there. Let me tell you something. The sad thing is, is no, maybe I didn't as a young boy experience all those sins over here like maybe you did that came to know Christ at an older age. But even worse, even though I knew what was right, even though I grew up in a godly home, I fell to all the same sins that you did before you met Christ. Don't forget your day of healing. Don't forget that Jesus Christ is healing you today in the process of sanctification. Don't forget it. Don't forget where you've come from. And begin to live a life that Jesus called you to live as a result of the healing that's taken place. Let's close our service with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for John chapter 5. And Lord, we've looked at it now two separate occasions and pulled two completely different applications from it. Father, in week three of this series, almost a full year ago, we talked about you being the great physician. And yet today we've opened up your word and we have seen that we have a problem with sin. Father, I know that as we close this time, we're already beginning to check out. We're already beginning to think about what's going on in the later part of the day. But Father, in the quietness of our hearts, I want us to ask the question, do I remember when you healed me? I remember that day that I received eternal life. And Father, if that's the case, how have we been living since that point? Are those words crying out to us, stop sinning or something worse may happen, ringing in our hearts and our ears this morning? That we are beginning to say, Lord, I haven't lived the way that I wanted to live. I haven't lived the way you've commanded me to live. We're called to stop sinning. Father, I don't know what sins are represented in this place, but I know my heart at times is full of sin, full of anger, full of frustration, full of idolatry, greed, lust, evil desires. And just like the sinful world, there seems to be a continual desire for more. Father, you command us today to stop sinning. So, Lord, in the quietness of our hearts, we give that sin over to you, whatever it is, and we place it at your feet. Lord, I pray that we would get up, that we'd pick up our old way of living, and we would walk in the righteousness of Christ. Because then and only then will we receive blessing. Then and only then will we give you honor, will we give you glory. Then and only then will we find the real purpose in life. Father, let us deal severely with sin in our own minds. Let us judge ourselves. So, Father, that not that we can beat ourselves up, but then in doing so, through the conviction of Your Holy Spirit, we can experience the fellowship with Your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to be a people who fellowship with You every day of our lives. So we turn to You and give our lives wholly over to You. We love You and thank You for the healing of our souls that me may one day be with you in eternity, worshiping your holy and precious name, see you high and lifted up, so that you will receive glory and honor 
and praise on that great and glorious day. To you be all the power and all the dominion and all the praise. And all God's people said, Amen. Go and fellowship with one another.